This is Robert Martin Lachey of the Mindshare Learning Port, and welcome to the special Mindshare TV Innovators podcast series, episode number six, featuring co-author Bobby Kirshan with guests Zoe Timms, Zoe Timms and Mary Louise Cohen. Discover why purpose-driven entrepreneurial women rise to the top. Thank you for joining me this evening. Thank Glad you. to be here. Thank yeah. you. Well, a little bit about Zoe Timms is the founder and executive director of Women's Education Project, which she formed in 2002 while living in India, working with students and WEP directors. Zoe developed the Leadership Academy curricula and adaptable holistic and locally sourced program. At the Leadership Academy, uh, young women ages 15 to 24 become knowledgeable and confident leaders prepared to pursue their ambitions and earn in careers with an expanded awareness of life opportunities. Zoe lives in Brooklyn, New York, with her husband and two children. Mary Louise Cohen, a founder, partner of Phillips and Cohen LLP, has represented whistleblowers for more than 25 years in lawsuits brought to remedy fraud against the United States. In 2014, she co-founded Talent Beyond Borders, which opens skilled migration pathways for skilled refugees to move to job opportunities in a new country. Working with governments, refugees serving organizations, the business community and local communities, TBB is building a safe and legal pathway for displaced people to move for work and resume their careers so they can rebuild their lives with dignity. Impressive uh, resumes, ladies, and uh, kudos to you for your leadership and inspiration and being part of the Innovators Innovators uh, podcast series. I'm going to pass the baton over to Dr. Bobby Kershan, who is the co-author of Innovators, for uh, the first question. Thanks, Robert. And um, I'm so glad that both Zoe and Mary Louise could join because they both have such a great story that overlaps around how we look at making a difference, how we address social justice, and how we look at innovators. And um, I want to start off by asking you a question that both your stories have a commitment to social justice. And I wanted to know why, why was this your passion and how did your journey take you there? Um, in the book, I know, Zoe, you talk about your journey starting with your uh, time in India as a student. And Mary Louise, we've talked over dinner and pizza and wine, <laughs> talked about how your journey started when you were traveling and meeting refugees. So, Zoe, why don't you start and tell us how your journey got you to social justice? Uh, I was living in India my senior year of college at the University of Wisconsin, and we lived in Hyderabad. Uh, Andhra Pradesh. And as part of our program, we were to create our own year in India, our own curriculum. And so I started volunteering at a small NGO for former girl child laborers. And I started teaching them English. They went to English classes. And I was working with these children who had left factories with you know, burns on their hands, and yet they were so committed to studying in a classroom, just this little farmhouse that I would come out to. And it was just inspiring to see these young women so committed to making change in their own lives. And the little bit I could do was just so gratifying. And I told the director, who actually now works for us at Women's Education Project, 
that this is at 21, I think I was about 21, um, that I wanted to work in the field of grassroots education and working with girls. And so I um, began a career there in Hyderabad. <laughs> and you brought it back to the States with you and now you've extended it quite a bit in India. Congratulations on that. And yeah. Mary, Mary Louise, your story is somewhat similar. So why don't you share what yours is? Actually, mine is, is a little a bit of a slower burn than Zoe's. I um, went to law school and came out of law school working for big corporate law firms. And in my late 20s, I realized that I really didn't care who won the antitrust suit between two big companies. I wanted to do something that I felt mattered more and I went to work on the Hill. And that was my first chance to work on sort of public policy, social issues. Um, my job there involved dealing with runaway and homeless kids, um, bunch of child protection issues. I left there and went and did gun control work um, and then ended up in, in the whistleblower space so that I was using my law degree in ways that felt good to me. But I really got into the sort of humanitarian space through my then 15-year-old son who went off on a trip to Ethiopia, came back um, really thrilled by what he had learned and seen and the way the world opened up to him. And he took my husband and me back to Ethiopia a year later. And that's when I started side projects, trying to do things in the developmental humanitarian space. And could you tell us a little bit about your talent beyond what boundaries and where it is today? Sure. Talent Beyond Boundaries really started because in 2013, my husband retired from his job in the Senate and I left my law firm and we went off to Harvard to a fabulous fellowship there called the Advanced Leadership Initiative for people who finish their first careers but want to do more than play golf and sell a beach with the next 30 years of their lives. And that's and, where you met Kathy, who's the co-author. And that's where Talent Beyond Boundaries started. Um, the, the notion there is you spend a year at Harvard and you then go find some area of social justice you want to spend some time and effort working in. And the Syrian refugee crisis was um, on the forefront of everyone's mind while we were there. And Bruce and I had this light bulb moment at a UNICEF fundraiser when we learned that many of the Syrian refugees had been skilled professionals before they had to run. And we had this thought, well, why isn't someone using established work visa pathways to help move these families to safety. And that, that was really the genesis for Talent Beyond Boundaries. Right. And so both of you, um, either one of you, just to follow up on that. So this passion that you both had influenced what you were, you know, were doing in both your retirement and in your own career, Zoe. What do you, how do you measure the impact? I mean, clearly we see it. It's anecdotal every, way, every time you do it. But how do you measure it in ways that you can share with people? You're raising funds, fund, you, funds. How you, how you can get people to understand the data. So either one of you, I'd love to know how you measure impact. Zoe? We, I mean, it's perfect. Yeah, oh, can you hear me? Um, it is, it's a perfect timing um, for us as an organization. We have, from the very beginning, been collecting our students' stories, photographs, and uh, videos. We've made tons of videos. and. We are in the process of building what we call the Women's Collaboration Lab. And at the Women's Collaboration Lab, 
we are creating an incubator program for grassroots leaders to uh, run the Leadership Academy within their own communities because it is locally owned program that they develop within their own communities. And we are developing, while we want our students to be telling their own stories, um, because we don't, like the impact, everyone's talking about impact is, we don't believe our students are a number. And so we're really working on forming a system in which we can collect their stories and collect for them to tell their stories, for our directors to tell their stories, um, but at the same time as some kind of system so that we can really show people the impact of when the student first entered the Leadership Academy and left the Leadership Academy and how they've entered a career or they've started their own chicken farm or whatever they are doing with their life. Uh, so the long story or I guess short story is that we're working on it, is that we are developing a system to really collect impact in our own way um, but really locally owned um, stories that the girls own their own stories and uh, the directors own their own stories as well. I love it. As you know, our book is based on stories. So I think it's great yeah. what you're doing. Our storytelling. Yeah. And two of my favorite authors are uh, that work with data, but also tell stories in their books. And that's why we read them, of course, is Malcolm Gladwell. Um, from his books and Adam Grant from his books. They both are great storytellers, but they've got lots of data behind that. So I love that. Great. Good luck. And Mary Louise? That's, you know, it, it's an interesting question because in the early days, that was one of our really hard, hard things. Um, we were trying to change systems and funders wanted to know, well, how many refugees have you moved? And we're going, but we're changing systems. We're changing the way... Uh, refugee serving organizations work. We're changing the way governments look at refugees. We're changing the way employers look at this group of employees. And that takes time. Um, now we can do it the sort of old fashioned way with numbers because we've got thousands of people moving and it's, it's easier to tell that story. And it was, you know, very frustrating to, to be treated like we were talking about widgets when we were actually talking about, uh, setting the stage for, you know, big change, but big change down the road. Yeah. It's really hard impact. Robert, you have something going to add to that or ask around that or your, another question? I'm good to uh, ask the next question. So uh, in the research, both Bobby and Kathy found that the need to achieve showed up very high as a strength from the data on entrepreneurs. But when they asked women in the book, they didn't uh, select their need to achieve as a strength. So I asked the question, what do you think, uh, what do you attribute that to and how has your need to achieve influenced your work? Uh, let's over to you, Zoe. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that, um, I think we all uh, uh, define our own achievements and what achievement means to us. And I think that when I look back at achievements, I, I just think of it as step by step by step to getting to what we really envision for Women's Education Project. Um, I think I would answer that question again for the book. <laughs> so I think that achievement. Um, <laughs> It's kind of like climbing that ladder for of of building what we're building, and it's it it is um, 
it's so important to me, like every learning step, every kind of small achievement, even though I don't realize it at the time, um, is really powerful. Um, and I find now when I think about achievement, I've started telling other people about how to start a nonprofit or don't start a nonprofit. And <laughs> 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 when I, when I kind of look back at all this learning that I've had over the last 20 years, it's incredible to teach other people my own lessons or to tell other people, give them my advice. Um, and I, I think that is, is achievement really that we're building towards it. Yeah. And I think it's about accomplishing goals. It's not a need to achieve to be recognized by other people. It's it's the need to actually make a concrete difference and to produce a result, not to be, you know, listed as the most successful somewhere. And that may be how women are somewhat different than men. Yeah, I never, I mean, when I thought of achievement, I, I thought of that as a question like, oh, this massive, you know, hundreds of million dollars in a huge nonprofit with our name recognized everywhere. And I, I just never, I think that's why I answered the question at the time. Like, I don't see it that way. I see it um, as kind of a life path towards really making an impact in, in uh, maybe we use achievement differently on, in the, since Bobby might have some thoughts on this. Yeah, I, I love both your answers and, and it really reflects what we found out in all the interviews. Every woman that we interviewed in the book did not, although the data from the large group we took the data from, need to achieve was very high for entrepreneurs. Clearly, you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't have some desire to have an impact and need to achieve. However, when we asked the women in the book to list their strength, and you remember you filled out the, the form, not one of you picked need to achieve as your most significant strength. And when we looked at that, we found that very unusual. So Laura and I and Kathy went back and kind of did some analysis and talked to several of you. And we think there was three reasons and I think you've both alluded to all both of these or three of them. But one was that women generally don't take credit for what they do they tend to want somebody else to take credit. So that's why they don't want people to think, oh, we're just doing this, as Zoe said, to get our name and, and be recognized. Mm -hmm. The second thing we found out when we re-looked at the data was that women don't want to be perceived as being aggressive and moving to the top in that way, in a way that, you know, particularly when feminism was starting, we heard, you're too aggressive. And they call men assertive, but they would call women aggressive. And then the third reason was the more interesting one to me, that they that women tend to feel very strongly about their need to achieve except they don't see it as their strength because when they look at how they operate they saw their strengths as being the need to execute well to have their passion involved so it wasn't that it wasn't a strength for women it just wasn't the one that was their priority as a strength so i think you all have alluded to all that it was fascinating um that's sort of one of the surprises we found in the data in the book some other things that were interesting were things we kind of expected to the data to support, but that was one of the more interesting findings. I want to ask you, which goes to the next question, I want to ask you a little bit about self-confidence. It's a theme that we heard so often in the book and that women, successful women innovators are, have a lot of self-confidence and that did show up as a high, high strength in, in it. However, almost every woman in the book 
said that they at some point in their career had an imposter syndrome, that they didn't feel that they should be at the table, that they were not the best person at the table, or they'd work, walk in a room and people would ask them to go get the coffee and that would, you know, their self-confidence just dropped 20 levels when that happened. So how do you, how have you dealt with your um, imposter syndromes over your journeys? Mary Louise, you want to share? I, I sort of think my imposter syndrome shows up when I accomplish something and I think, well, if I did it, it must not have been very hard to do, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. so and I still feel that way today. I'm, I'm not sure I'll ever get out of it. Um, I feel very confident about things that I know about and where I have some expertise. What was harder with this was we jumped into a field we didn't know anything about and had to make it up. And part of that meant I had to own that I didn't know the answers and feel very comfortable asking people for advice and to share their expertise and um, it, it, admit weakness. Right. And actually, I think that was in your story that you uh, alluded to that quite a bit in the book, the ability that you have to ask questions and feel confident that you can ask them and not feel that you're not still the leader or the one running the in charge. Zoe, I know one of the things that impressed me since the day I've met you through Kathy was you started this very young, whereas Mary Louise did this, as she said, as her second or third or fourth career, but after she's sort of gone back and you were doing this in, 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 in college. And did you ever experience when you're trying to do this, that people didn't think you should be doing it? Um, or and I know you were asked to give the graduation speech and yeah I know <laughs> I about that self confidence experience. I well, that, I mean that speech was amazing. I mean I honestly I had I had suffered I would say suffered from major stage fright, <laughs> yeah, serious stage fright. And then I got up at the University of Wisconsin and gave a stage speech to five thousand people. <laughs> I was like I mean that I think that confidence is. Um, a muscle that you have to exercise every day. And uh, what you were saying, Mary Louise, about talking to people, I feel like that, um, and to learn about things, and that's kind of exercising the muscle, but of self-confidence every day. I think that for me, a turning point with self-confidence, because for some reason, I don't know why, I mean, I can't believe I started a nonprofit in India 20 years ago. So, you know, I don't know where that came from. Um, I just did it. Um, and just didn't kind of ask about it. But I feel like a, all the time, because we are a growing nonprofit and our budget is within the books of like $250,000 nonprofit is all these nonprofits are at that level. How do you get to, we're at that phase of how do we scale the nonprofit? A big, over the 20 years, I've always been like, oh, you know, we're just small. We're a really, really small nonprofit, almost with that kind of unconfident voice of like, we're just little as a nonprofit. And we've been working, working, working for 20 years. And a turning point in that voice, because it is, it is kind of a voice of not being a, a confident voice, because like, don't worry about us, we're just small, we're kind of chugging along, is that a board member said, well, wait, why are we so small? Why are these large nonprofits? And I thought about the large, non why did they get so much money? And why are we so small? And I thought about it, and I thought about two, large nonprofits that you'd know the name of, and they made huge mistakes with a lot of money. 
And we didn't, we haven't, we've chugged along with a small amount of money, but we've really learned, we have not taken like that massive grant and made a, and thought, oh, we're, and we did a top-down program. We've known who we are, we're grassroots. And every single step that we've been taking, they're small and they're confident, but, you know, and we're learning all the way, but we haven't made that huge step. And so I think that recognizing that um, of who we are, that's where our, our real, my confidence come from, comes from having been able to articulate that of our journey in a better, more confident way. Instead of being like, oh, we're small. We, we really have just learned um, and we've had a very different path. Well, I know when we speak and we've spoken several times about that, it's your commitment to believing that you can be small and have an impact and not let that deteriorate your self-confidence by people. I know what scale means to us too, because like other people can tell you, oh, you need so many zeros behind mm -hmm. you, so many numbers, but like we know what scale means to us. And I feel like your my own voice, the organization's voice just gets more confident as we grow and understand who we are. One of your uh, other women that was in the book, Anjali, who runs a very large nonprofit mm -hmm. in India, and she advises Zoe. Um, yes. We had dinner when I was in Dubai because she's now living part of the year in Dubai. And she basically, we were talking about Zoe's journey because we both have sort of been in an in a advisory role, Anjali more than mine, Kathy quite significantly. One of the things that we were saying was that you have learned to feel comfortable that you don't have to apologize for where you are now yeah. and scaling. Whereas in the beginning, people kept saying, oh, you need to be bigger, you need to do this. And you've really taken that self-confidence and grown it and can explain why you're where you're at. So congratulations. We have a, one more question, one more area of conversation, Robert. Yeah. Wanna... yeah so, um, it's so inspiring. You both have created organizations that help others change their lives and have built robust support systems for those you are helping. So we, your journey started by helping one woman obtaining the funds to get an MBA. How did your empathy influence the organization you have grown? And why is the community been such an important factor in your success? Um, I, I, I started the organization because of one young woman and um, we provided her a scholarship. And, and I think that in empathy, my own empathy, I really enjoy listening and working with people. And so we have built an organization alongside grassroots leaders who know the problems, know the issues so much closer. And so listening to them, and I'm very close to all of our directors, uh, listening to them, listening to our students, we've really been able to grow a program that is not a top-down approach, but has developed uh, systems in which we are providing a framework for local leaders to make uh, local decisions to support young women to become leaders and to become change makers. Um, so I think that my empathy is that I love uh, working with people and really working with people who know the issues so much more. And I love learning and being kind of alongside them. I really miss being in India right now and sitting next to the students, sitting next to our directors kind of working this stuff out together. Um, but it, it is because of that, it does infuse every part of our program. We have this great connect program in which we're getting our donors to really listen to our students and kind of on the calls like this. So, and I think that developing that listening is kind of throughout our organization. 
and that growth mindset you permeate is uh, amazing. Thank you for that. Mary Louise, share what inspired you to start Talent Beyond Borders and how you overcame concerns about your self-confidence to help so many refugees. Um, Bruce and I, when we realized that there was this idea that somebody should be using work visa pathways to, um, to move refugees, we went back and looked to see if anyone else was doing it. My husband said, that's so obvious, surely someone's doing it. And we went back and spent a couple of months doing research and realized no one was doing it. And we thought, well, if nobody else is doing it, we should. And just jumped in there. And what was surprising to me is how if you have people who are, you know, credible people who just get out there and try to move something forward, how quickly you can bring others along when your idea makes sense. And um, I think what is really important for everyone is if you, if you have an idea of some way you want to make the world better, just start doing it and other people will come along and you'll start a snowball going down a hill. Today I had lunch with a woman that runs the women's group at the IDF and she puts funds. You probably have worked with the IDF, but um, she was telling me a very similar comment that you just made. I asked her about, um, we were talking about Syrian refugees and I was mentioning Mary Louise and we were talking about why people had not addressed that group because the ones that came out skilled, because most of the refugees that left Syria, she was saying in the early age days, came out educate, with skills, educated, and they often had money because they were smart enough to get out before. So they were refugees, and but they didn't know what to do with that once they got there. And, and people thought, well, they needed to address the cases that were the worst cases but they were, had the same set of problems that you were helping solve. So I'm not surprised you found nobody was addressing that issue. Great. Over to you, Bobby. Okay, well, finally, if you would share with us just one thing, the most important trait you think that you have that helped you rise to the top. And we asked this question for the book, but over time you may think of it as, as something different in your entrepreneurial mindset. But what about you is the most important one that takes you to the top? You want me to start? Sure, Mary Louise, great. I think I'd say optimism. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> I love that one. Good one. And Zoe? Uh, I don't know if there's a word for it. I guess there is stick to if that's a word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Straight in the entrepreneurial mindset is persistence. Persistence, the persistence, um, yeah. Yeah, well, those are really important because you two have certainly exhibited those as you've risen to the top. And we want to thank you for your time and sharing your stories with us. Robert? With that, thank you so much, uh, Zoe and, and Mary Louise, and for Bobby co-hosting this evening's show. If you'd like to learn more to or to share your Innovators story, go to innovators.com. Uh, watch for our next episode, number seven, uh, coming your way soon. My name is Robert Merlacci of the Mindshare Learning Port. Be sure to check out W Mindshare Learning, get your latest issue. And until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and keep the learning curve steep. Thank you. Thank you.